Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. <clears throat> Did you guys read over the show notes? The beeping isn't uh, too annoying. <laughs> Is it bad? Is it horrible? The no, beep- it's nice. It's uh, <laughs> it's a nice texture. To the... uh, okay, well, let's get into it. You ready? Yeah. All right. All right. Welcome to Hammer Factor 38, um, the Welds Back in Town edition. Um, on my, I want to introduce my co-host here, Lewis Geltman, North Fork Champion, Policy Director for the Outdoor Alliance. Can you hear me? Or is that going to be too much? Is that going to be too much? I can hear you. I can hear some nice beeping noises. It's like the smoke detector going off or something. Ah, <laughs> dude, we just blew a transformer. I am hanging on to battery power here uh, throughout this podcast. You can't podcast. have too many more of these like lo-fi episodes where people right. start peeling off. Uh, right. Well, they should have peeled off a long time ago. Um, also, back from overseas, um, John Weld, father of two. And Whitewater Legend, welcome back. And uh, I think I'm going to have to end that right there. <laughs> <laughs> You're breaking up. There's beeping in the background. I can almost smell smoke coming through this microphone here from your studio apartment or wherever the hell you're in. <laughs> Is that better? <laughs> Is that better? Who knows? All right, well, let's roll with it. So, um... How was your trip? Welcome back, John. Fill us in. We we made it without you, um, but it wasn't the same. Uh, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah, I'm still. Well, I, I'm actually over the jet lag, so I'm I'm good. I'm ready to roll. I, I came back. the the uh, The Hammer Factor Studios weren't too much of a mess. Yeah, we had. We Someone had... tell Shane he needs to get off the sofa and go home. <laughs> Well, Shane, the beer cans. Shane has left, but he did a good job. Thanks for Shane coming on. But I tell you, he ranted on the Hammer Factor on the Hammer Factor. He ranted about the Hammer Factor on the Hammer Factor. So that's kind how of how dare him. That's kind of what? Uh, how, how dare he? What did he? What was he ranting about? I I, I didn't hear it. Uh, he was kind of ranting about you and you making fun of uh, freestyle. Me? Yeah. Me? Yeah. You. I don't think I could be singled out for that, but <laughs> no, I, it wasn't. I like freestyle. I just like freestyle and freestyle boats. <laughs> be clear. Okay. Well, well said. Yeah, I, I think coming on the hammer factor and ranting about the hammer factor is well within bounds. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah it was actually <laughs> like really it. good. Um, did you guys, so I had to do, uh, just due to scheduling and what, and whatnot, I had to record the, uh, um, Keem Fontany interview world champion freestyle separately. Did you guys have a chance to listen to that? I did not. I didn't realize you'd done that. How was he? He was really good, man. He's got a really good, he's kind of got a, he's got a pretty cool story. He's basically for all intents and purposes is for a world champion unsponsored. Uh, he's just goes to the university. Um, he just, when he, his kayaking pretty much consists of getting out of class and going to the local, 
canal and practices his freestyle and whatever, and he just came in and beat the best in the world. So he was cool. That's cool. Had Get some, on him. Had some really good insight. So I've, I, you know, and he, I asked him what he was most fired up about sport and he about the sport, and he was, uh, he was ready to go do some exploring, go do some shit running. So I thought that was pretty cool. Right. Right. Answer. Cool. I'm listening to it. Um, well, let's get right into the show. But before we do, top of the show sponsor. Our first sponsor ever, huge shout out to Canoe and Kayak. Canoe and Kayak has been leading the paddle sports media game for 45 years, reaching an audience of nearly a half million people. With in-depth articles um, like the one that uh, we went over last week that I want to touch on a little bit, the Grand Canyon Escalade Project. Check them out at canoekayak.com so something interesting about that article that we discussed a little bit last week Lewis about that opinion piece about bears ears or about about the Grand Canyon Escalade about bears right. ears um, and the San Juan River and whatnot. and uh, I was talking to the guys Dave Shively over there at Canoe and Kayak and he pointed me to and there was a, an, a crazy amount of paddlers that were very pro this move it was really interesting he sent me to a discussion on their facebook page you should go check that out lewis because there was i mean i wish that all those people who were commenting had listened to the hammer factor because a lot of the stuff that they were talking about was just uh just misinformation you know so i don't know how to get people informed but that was what i saw on that we should uh maybe we'll check it out and we can we can explain to them why they're wrong on the next hammer factor (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's kind of what we do, isn't it? <laughs> we just lump them together with the uh, the like zero degree offset and one ninety eight length paddle people. <laughs> Four boaters, play boaters, offset and flat earthers. <laughs> one ninety eight paddles. Should we talk about the amazing piece of artwork that we got from Andrew Miller? <laughs> yeah. Did you? Well, that didn't make it in the show notes either. I'm gonna have to. Uh, I mean, what are you supposed to say about it? I mean. <laughs> I thought it was really good. I know good. Andrew Miller is going to think some kind of, I'm like some like anti-Andrew Miller conspiracy here, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so last week, Grace and I threw out the call for uh, t-shirt art, and I described my beautiful dream of a t-shirt featuring Ryan Zinke standing on a sup that says Zinke oh. Sup's on it. I did not know that. You see, I didn't know that part of the story. I just thought that was something that was floating around that oh, Andrew no. Miller had sent us. Oh, this is no, the idea I had in my head, but ah. don't have anywhere near the artistic chops to create on my own. And Andrew Miller created it, and it's awesome. I huh. I hope that we're going to make this into a T-shirt. But if either way, we need to make some stickers. Like this sticker needs to be plastered up on <laughs> BLM signs across the West, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> as a, uh... I'd like to see like a sticker of like. Zinky water skiing on baby coffins in Lake Powell. <laughs> Something like that. This one is, is more on brand for like... the factor. <laughs> be, be careful what you wish for because Lewis's dream <laughs> t-shirt just came just popped up in the inbox. So can we just can we make this shirt? Yeah. I want that on the back and then Hammer Factor like on the on the front, just like on the breast or whatever. I'm down to do it. Did, well, we'll put it up. We'll put it up online and and let the viewers decide. But I thought, as a as we a, should as, do as we a, should do it if we sell like we should do it like a Kickstarter. If we sell like twenty shirts or whatever, we'll print them because I can print. We can print. We can print like a, a two dozen shirts. I think up here at IR, something like that. 
it's like amazingly well rendered. Zinky's <laughs> expression is just totally on point. The whole thing is, I, I, I couldn't be worth the rest. The fact that we just threw this out into the world and then it came back as a fully realized idea like several days later is mind-blowing to me. I'm totally stoked. I had no idea. I thought that was just something, some little meme that was floating around that got, oh, that got sent our way. But, oh, you, all right. okay, you've got to cool. listen because it was like, Lewis was like, this is what I want. This is what I want for the t-shirt. Like He was like, he was like, he, he like, you know, got the podium. He was like, look, I want Brian Zinke in a cowboy hat on a sup, and I want underneath it to say Zinky subs. And dude, like three hours later, <laughs> it's like right there. Huh. So, anyway, we'll right, put who's, it, who's on today's show? We'll put it up online. Uh, today we have Josh Pekarik from Verus Kayaks, and I'm not even sure if that's the right way to say that. Just, I mean, right? That that's like a little one of those optical illusions where you just glance at it. And it appears to be versus kayak, which is something I want to ask him about. Yeah, it, it's V E R U S kayaks. So he was uh, Berus, if that's how you pronounce it, was the last gladiator of the Roman Empire. I saw it on his website. I thought you were going to say that it was the last, like, unclaimed domain name that looked like a word. <laughs> <laughs> well,. Um, mm. we'll, we'll be excited to hear about that. He's got a pretty, um, you know, I had just heard about this company and sent it to you guys when he came out with had this. You, had you guys heard anything about this uh, before? So we had a, we had a listener write in about it, right? It was, uh, what was his name? Um, what was his name? Ben, Ben, Ben Zurich. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Ben wrote I mean, in. Before he wrote it. Have you heard? Had you heard of Verus Kayaks before that? I had just like that week saw a video of their whitewater boat, the Gladiator. So, hmm. anyway, hmm. let's see. We've got an article here. I don't think I read that article. Which one? The Washington Post article. Well, I thought the article. The article. The article was about Patagonia suing Trump over Bears Ears Escalante, um, which I thought was sort of a way to connect the story or to, I don't know, to put some an interesting focal point in the story. What's Zinke's office department of the interior, Lewis? Yes. What was the headline that they put on there that they came to the savior to allow people with wheelchairs to recreate in? Did I send that to you? Oh yeah. Do you want to talk about that? That's a nice thorny one. Yeah. The bikes in wilderness issue. Yeah. Let's, let's, Let's kind of talk about that because I thought it was interesting, and I'm, I think it's actually really cool that they allowed wheelchairs to go in there. Um, <laughs> Every time we come to this part of the show, or do you want to talk about bikes and wilderness? Lewis just starts rubbing his eyes, <laughs> and <laughs> sort of like starts like pushing his hands into his hair. <laughs> you guys just go straight for the most. I don't know. I don't know. All right, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about? Well, we do both and just and get 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 through them both. Is that you, possible? You will take a yeah, we, take a stab at what you think is the most important that our listeners should should understand from from this. I'll give you like like a two minute monuments thing just because it's kind of entertaining. Which is, you know, I'm sure you guys saw that when Trump came out with the announcement about Bears Ears, Patagonia turned the entire front of their web page into the president just stole your land all in black. Okay. Right. Did you guys see this? Yeah. 
And so, I mean, which is, it's interesting, right? Like it's a little, certainly inflammatory. It's a little bit hyperbolic, you know, it's still federal land, but he did, you know, he rolled back protections basically. So, I mean, I guess in a sense he's stealing it because he's stealing control over that land and handing it to the fossil fuel companies, but it does still belong to us. So I, that messaging is a little, it's a little inflammatory. Well, uh, on the Natural Resources Twitter page, which is quite spicy, I may, I may add. Yes. I mean, this guy's, yeah, that's where, that was where I was going. Real, they were real going on over there. That, but they, they responded by saying that Patagonia is a special interest that makes its products in China. Oh, this was Zinke. No, they said uh, that Patagonia is attempting to sell more products to wealthy, elitist urban dwellers from New York to San Francisco. Was their take on Patagonia, which... To be honest, it's kind of accurate, but <laughs> no, I, that, um, that part, I don't know. I mean, so they made this this little meme that was like <laughs> copying Patagonia's homepage, and it's like Patagonia's lying to you. Don't buy it. Which, as someone pointed out, is you know potentially illegal to be using your government platform to lobby for a boycott of a business. So that's. I mean, didn't Trump do that with Ivanka and Nordstrom? Yeah, also illegal. <laughs> but I mean, the whole thing is just, just kind of, um, it's become sort of sort of sorted. But, you know, Patagonia is uh, they're walking the walk, you know, they're they're really putting up a fight on this thing beyond just putting stuff up on their website. They're uh, they're litigating it. And I believe they're on the same lawsuit as Access Fund. He's one of our member organizations. He's really leading the charge on this because there are a lot of climbing areas, like really, really premier climbing areas that are losing protections. So, I don't know. I'm with Patagonia. <laughs> but I'm probably one of those pseudo-wealthy coastal elitists. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. And then Zdinky was on Fox News, and he said, uh, he, this is where he called Patagonia spe- special interest that makes products in China, and the company should focus on how to bring manufacturing back to the country instead of lying to the public about losing federal land. Well, that's a burn. <sighs> I mean, I don't know yeah, how Patagonia... I, just, I don't even know where to start with that. Be char- well, I could... I, yeah, all right. <laughs> well, what about the uh, <laughs> Department of the Interior homepage that claimed, I mean... It looks to me like they're allowing wheelchairs where where uh, Obama so would not allow it, wheelchairs. So this is not uh, this isn't interior. This is now now we're pivoting to Congress, where uh, Mike McClintock from California is sponsoring this bill to allow mountain bikes in the wilderness. Which is so I, you know, I think a lot of people don't even know that mountain bikes are not allowed in the wilderness. But they're not. It's, uh, you know, in the Wilderness Act, it says that mechanized transportation or transport or something is not allowed in wilderness areas. That's been interpreted to include mountain bikes, even though mountain biking wasn't a thing when the Wilderness Act was passed in 1964. Um, And, you know, over the years, there have been some wilderness designations that have closed mountain biking trails. And that sits poorly with a lot of mountain bikers um but at the same time you know for the conservation community in this country the wilderness act is just like this absolutely wholly untouchable thing and the idea that 
somebody would make any changes whatsoever to the Wilderness Act evokes, you know, this extremely emotional reaction that's like, it's just sacrilege. And so that puts, you know, organizations like ours, especially organizations like IMBA, who's our member group, in a really thorny spot because, you know, there's some subset of the mountain biking community for whom having access to wilderness is really important. And there are other people who sort of see the bigger game here and are like, you know, we need, you know, it's, it's okay that there's some places where mountain bikes aren't allowed, but we have to address this. And so, you know, Outdoor Alliance, we submitted testimony on this bill. And what we're saying is, look, you know, the Wilderness Act has done an unbelievable amount of good. I mean, it's been protected a ton of really, really important places. But at the same time, you know, in recent years, things like what happened in Boulder White Clouds out in Idaho a few years ago, where a couple of like super, super important bike trails got closed by this wilderness designation really unnecessarily because they could have been, they could have drawn the wilderness boundaries in a way that left these trails rideable. And, you know, the mountain biking community out there, they worked really closely to try and make that happen. And they kind of got thrown under the bus by some of the conservation organizations at the, at the last minute. And so that's really, you know, created a lot of hard feelings that are very understandable. And so I think what we want to see is just to make sure that as we designate new wilderness areas that it's being done in a way that's super, super conscientious of mountain biking. And I need to be like cherry stems drawn through wilderness areas to protect existing trails. Sometimes if there's trail loss, it needs to be mitigated by building a new trail somewhere else. Mountain bikers have to be at the table in these conversations and their interests have to be taken seriously. And we have to designate these things collaboratively. You can't just come in and just, you know, slap a wilderness area out there that closes a ton of mountain biking trails because it's, it's undermining support for the wilderness act, which is like just the most core conservation law. And it's just, it's not necessary. Right. And so it's just this very difficult issue for us where, you know, there's some tension between recreation groups and conservation organizations, which we don't, you know, that's not a comfortable place for us to be because we see ourselves as both of those things. Right. Mm-hmm. Totally but you know, the, the, the wheelchairs thing, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that wheelchairs are allowed in the wilderness already under the ADA. And that's just like, wilder, you know, that's just window dressing for these guys who want to kind of like poke at the wilderness act. Yeah. So I don't know. Tough one. I just think I'm just blown away by the headlines <laughs> and the uh, comments coming from the government, like, you know, attacks on businesses and, you know, and just. I don't know. It's nuts. It's crazy. To be times. clear, the the point is is that wheelchairs aren't allowed in wilderness areas because they're mechanized travel. Yes, I think wilderness. I'm pretty sure that wheelchairs are allowed in wilderness areas, but it's also it's fucking arbitrary, right? Like, I mean, if you're gonna have a smartphone and you're in the wilderness, but you're not allowed to have a a game cart, like, I don't know, man. But we can solve this problem without opening up the wilderness act, and that's what we need to try to do, at least for the time being. All right, there you go. Outdooralliance.org. Thanks for that, Lewis. You know, I'm, you're busy up there doing your thing in Washington. How long are you traveling for? I'm here through Christmas. I came back. We had uh, we had our the executive directors from the member organizations in town this week to meet with the new chief of the Forest Service. This guy Tony Took, and 
did some Senate meetings with those guys. guys. Yeah, guys just, you take them out, you go to Hooters, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the voice. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of just how you imagine those DC lobbying trips being. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get into some viewer mail? Because we've gotten yes. a lot of viewer mail. Are we going to do all of these, or, or am I going to have to kind of skim through a few of these? That one that we just got, I really want to go through with that one. I'm going to throw that one to Lewis. About a couple the, of them uh, could we go a couple of these pretty quickly, yeah. to be honest. What? Okay. You know, okay, so very quickly, we had people keep writing about this paddle offset thing, and I understand that you know the truth uh, is shocking um, and disappointing to a lot of people out there, and big paddle and that you, you, we all know who I'm talking about, but Big Paddle's been out there promoting these low-offset paddles <laughs> and for a decade or more, and people are coming to grips with this, and it's, it's not a, a cheap change, a transition to make. It usually involves a 300 or so dollar replacement paddle, and people are angry, and they keep writing about it. But uh, Max Posner and Tyler Hoke, it, for example, wrote us, once again, concerned about the uh, offset of paddles. They pointed out that Jim Snyder, and we know this, Jim Snyder wrote an article about this and suggested 40 degree, which is a fine step up as you move your way towards 60. Um, I did talk about Jim, talk with Jim about coming on the show. He seemed noncommittal. Jim's not the kind of guy you want to push, but Jim, if you're listening, give me a shout out. We can, we can work it out. We'd love to have you come on. Um, I, this really, this should be this should be good news for Big Paddle, as everyone realizes the inadequacy of what they're they're currently doing and migrating to contemporary you'd, platform. You think, but in these days, it's hard to tell. You know, people do self-destructive things for short-term gain all the time in this in this environment. So I'm not sure what what's going on. If we could have Danny, you know, Danny Mongo is really the person to come on here and blow the lid off the story because he's no longer with Big Paddle. He's moved on to Big accessories or I don't know what they are. <laughs> Danny, if you're out there or if you know Danny, because I know he doesn't listen, he's he's too busy like training for a marathon or something to listen to the show. Uh, Bobby Zone Dog Miller. We all know Bobby Zone Dog Miller, right? Zone Dog going back to uh, American Whitewater article days. Um, he wrote in saying that he is a close gripper. He is a close gripper. I'm not sure he's how that eluded us when we were having that conversation earlier. And he, he calls it a success story and I do too, in the sense that, <clears throat> I mean, close gripping is a is a it's a hideous disfigurement that would honestly be shameless, <laughs> total seclusion. And he's gone on to great things with it. So I applaud him for that. Um, he's a, he's a he's a hero. That's a hashtag real heroes right there. A couple things right? on that. Number one, I want to give a shout out to the Hammer Factor listeners because every time that they talk about this paddle offset thing. They like yeah. cite their references. You know, they're not coming at this argument just with "I don't think so." They're like bringing things off the internet and being like, "But we continue yeah. to shoot them down." So, <clears throat> Zone Dog, well, did you guys see Zone Dog's yeah. article on Race in the Green? No. Oh my God, you have got to read this article. It's so funny, and I, I haven't read a lot of Zone Dog, but he tells a story in the first, second, and third person. <laughs> and I'm not sure, but I think like the dog. I mean, like if you have an alter ego, what does that mean in storytelling? Is that like it may be like four parts? Like it, it was amazing. It was an amazing story. I well, he's had this alter ego, the zone dog alter ego. I mean, but Bobby is a very quiet, very mild mannered person who's really a really genuinely nice guy. But for years, he wrote this sort of uh, article. He wrote this series of 
pieces in American Whitewater is Zone Dog, where he was sort of these this alpha male, you know, super that. boater, you know, smack talking individual. And people thought that's the kind of guy he was. And I, I'm not sure if he actually grooved on the hate or, or what. Uh, well, those I, were hilarious articles. <laughs> I got to you got to read this one. You got to read this one. It's really funny. I posted it on the Green Race Facebook page, but. Backing up. So Zone Dog, see, this is where we need to help Zone Dog. Because Zone Dog, the, the, the narrow, the close gripper can only offer so much success. And he swam in his longboat run. Mm. And I looked at the video, and I'm almost 90% sure it was because he was close gripping. It'll work for a short boat. You sure. Can, I mean, his forearms get... are exhausted. By the, time, <laughs> by, by, the time he gets, by the time he gets to angle left... Or go left, or whatever it is. His, his forearms are exhausted. They're just scorching hot, <laughs> right? Like holding a broomstick at the very end with your arm extended. Oh man, it, was... <laughs> it seems easy to begin with, but then it quickly uh, saps you of your will to live, basically. Oh, anyway, well, <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks for writing that in. You know, there's always time to fix your grip, Zone Dog. There's always time to fix it. For people out there suffering from this affliction, I, I really recommend putting some electrical tape on your paddle to tell you where to put your hands and right. stick with it. It's an yep. easy problem to solve. That's right. And you feel your hand slide across electrical tape, and you just sort of nudge them back into uh, the <laughs> zone. Like nine tenths, and you can get with the times. Man, right? we could almost do a close gripper t-shirt uh, t as well. He's got a nice non-t-grip using close grip going on his, uh, <laughs> on his up there. Right. I appreciated that. All it's all the little details are there, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about Sickline because Sickline rose his ugly head again. Hang you know on. what you said about Sickline. Hang, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. We already answered. Wait, this was last this issue. Right. Just a whole episode. Yeah. All so. right. I'm sorry. I've been out of it. Never mind. Yeah. Okay. And Weld laid. I mean, and uh, Lewis laid that to rest. So you need to reference uh, if okay, you're good. if you're worried about Sickline and Lewis's opinion on it, it was uh, brought to the surface, but. We did not mention John Crane's um, email that came to us about the men's health article. You want to fill us in on this one, Will? Excellent. Excellent observation. John Crane pointed out, it's, this is a men's health article, and you can take it for what it, what it is, because men's health is basically printed clickbait, right? Uh, but it's uh, Pornhub is now sponsoring extreme sports teams a la Red Bull, right? So uh, his question is, will BDP be the first Whitewater team supported or sponsored by Pornhub? Seems that Asheville and Hood River would be buzzing about this opportunity. <laughs> Once again, um, basically assuming that Asheville and Hood River are essentially Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. that opportunity has been brought to the attention of BDP. And I think that uh, in their long-standing record of follow-through and professionalism, it's safe to assume that it's in the works and they'll be sponsored by Pornhub any minute. Huh. Uh, I, I mean, I, the article is kind of jokey, and in the first paragraph, Men's Health refers to sponsoring you know, extreme sports as, as the, it's the wild, wacky world of extreme sports sponsorship, uh, which is kind of, I don't know, kind of trivializing the thing. But they do. the article does point out the problem that uh, you know, these extreme, it's not even extreme sporters, it's people who do like individual sports, whether it be climbing or mountain biking or kayaking. They have a hard time raising money to do this, you know, at any kind of elite level. Um, 
you know, and honestly, if it weren't for Red Bull, who would else be putting cash into kayaking right now? I like, thought you were going with a, with a different direction with that, which was to say that the people who pursue these sports have a hard time maintaining relationships. And so Pornhub is really a, a natural tie-in. <laughs> No, I don't know. Do we really? Does this sport really need that kind of that kind of branding? I mean, honestly. I mean, do we need? I mean, I don't. I have kids. Maybe I'm just getting too old. I don't know. It just seems to me like it's. God, it just seems more headache than it's worth. You know what I mean? I mean, do you want your kid? We. Grace, do you want your kids watching videos of the BDP crew with Pornhub life jackets? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, you are getting old, Wells. That's what I'm asking. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, I, you know, I it's don't know. It's probably not any worse for you than drinking Red Bull. Yeah. To be totally honest, uh, I think Lewis may have hit it right there. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know. You know, whatever. We'll see how that all plays out. Pornhub will get over that. I mean, dude, net neutrality's done. Free porn's done. You know, their whole oh, industry no, 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 no. Porn, but no, no. Porn... Porn will be part of your your package that you get from Comcast from here on out. <laughs> It'll be like the Entertainment Plus package. Uh, so we also oh. so moving on here. We also covered dope kayaks last episode. Weld, um, you did. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I actually know this cat, George Younger. We sponsor we sponsor George. He, he's a, he's a cool dude. I I didn't know he was. A, I didn't anything to do with this. Yeah, he was very so. appreciative of your of, of IR and, and, and put in a nice yeah. message, and we plugged Dope Kayaks. They got a cool thing going on. Yeah. I'll be honest. He, the, the, email, the email he wrote, my takeaway from it was that he seemed very beat down. He just was, like, <laughs> down by paddling. Which, I have a question for you, Grace, or Gelman, maybe even. Did you ever reach a point in your paddling career where you're just like, I can't, I, I got to quit, I got to get out of this? Yeah. Did you guys paddle like full time, like full, like three hundred days a year? I I did for about eight years. Yeah. I did for about seven or eight years too, where I was paddling between teaching in the U.S. and in Mexico and everything else I was doing. You know, I I, I couldn't say, but close to three hundred days a year. And after several years of it, I was ready to not do that. Yeah, I don't know. I think that yeah. uh, definitely there's lows and highs. That's for sure. What happened? Tell me your story, Grace. Uh, you know, like when I was ready to hang up the towel. Yeah. Were you just like, I just want a a day where I just, I just want a job where I'm just not soaking wet and kind of scared and, uh, you know, I'm just like sick of living off of eight thousand dollars a year and. Yeah that that did never you reach that, that point. Uh, that was never the like what I was doing for a living never really kind of battered me down, but. I did have a period in 2000, 2003, and uh, I was on a trip to Mexico, and I had went to Norway that summer, and I had been kayaking just super hard for a long period of time, and my body was just beat down. Like I was just like, I had, I was, I had shoulder problems, I had this like lower back injury that wouldn't go away. I got all this stuff, and I was like sitting sitting there, and like it was a day in Mexico, and I just ran Tomato One, Tomato Two. All down through that last section, and I woke up the next morning, and I was just like, oh, my God, I can't take this. Like, my body can't take this. <laughs> and uh, definitely that kind of shifted that trip. It's not like I quit kayaking, but I definitely uh, 
you know, I definitely realized that you had to, I had to like take a little time away, like a six week period and go do something, not kayaking and let your body heal. But I never was to the point where I was like, Oh, you know, like financially or whatever. It was like kind of a life change. It was like, what were you doing for money then though? Um, see at that point I was still working for South Central Communications. So I would, uh, you still like a 40 hour week job. Yeah, well, what I had to do, I had a really cool boss, and, and it was a really cool company. I knew some of the owners of the company. As long as I averaged 30 hours per week <clears throat> over the course of a calendar year, I could keep my full-time status and insurance and all of that stuff. So I would come, pick up extra shifts and do the whole nine yards and work you know, 50-hour weeks for a period of time, and then I would have you know, four or five months off. I mean, four or five weeks off. So, I mean, what was grinding me down was working on the river. I, I was just, I was just punching in every day, day after day after day after day after day, year after year after year after year. You know. Yeah, I've never done that. I've never. Goldman. I felt like in the U.S. we were just losing slalom venues, and races were just being held more and more and more on these like easy, very very flat courses, where I felt like I was, you know, the strengths that I have had were not were not helping me like i felt like i was always a pretty good whitewater paddler by the standards of slalom paddlers and when we started having to race on you know flat water all the time you know there were people who would beat me who would never beat me on harder white water and that just really annoyed me and um so yeah like fall 2003 Olympic trials for the next year and they were supposed to be on the Ocoee. That was, you know, where it was calendared on that, that 96 Olympic course, which is, you know, by the standards of slalom, like pretty good whitewater course. And, you know, I thought like I could do pretty well there. And, you know, I don't know how this, I can't recall exactly how this came to pass, but at the time it certainly seemed to me that it was through the incompetence of our governing body, USA canoe kayak at the time they uh, they lost water. Like, they couldn't get the TVA to give them a release to have a race on the Ocoee, so they moved the race, they moved the Olympic trials from the Ocoee to uh, South Bend, Indiana, which is just, like, oh, God, it's awful. It's so flat. The water quality is awful. It's just right in the city, and I just, you know, like, I had never had a good result there. I felt like I was generally incapable of having a result that would put me on the national team racing there. And I was just sort of like, if this is where the sport is going, it can go without me. And <laughs> I, uh, stopped racing, went back and finished school. And, you know, like I, I had been paddling like 300 days a year at that point. And then when I quit racing slalom, I think just, it took me a minute to kind of rediscover my enthusiasm for river running and for whitewater and to get, uh, you know, to really dive back in again. And so I think that was sort of the, the low point for me. And I think a lot of people have that when they quit racing, it's sort of, you know, you go from training so hard and feeling so good in the boat and you know that you're never going to feel that good in the boat again. Like you're never going to be able to, you know, just like be as good or feel as good. And it's like a frustration when you get in the boat and you're like, I just don't feel the way I want to feel in the kayak right now. And, um, it's easier just to walk away. Like Prentice, Chad Prentice just took up mountain biking. 
Yeah, you know, like a lot of people do that. But I think, you know, for me, as I really started to kind of like get back into river running, it was like I was learning so much again about just running the shit that even if I didn't quite have the same athleticism or feel quite as sharp in the boat, I was just like learning so much and everything was so fresh that that made up for it, you know? And so I think I really kind of hit my, my peak as a river runner, like much later, you know, like in my thirties for sure. So. <clears throat> what about you, Weld? Well, you know, I, first of all, I was never a serious racer. Uh, and I didn't train anywhere near as hard as Gallopman and certainly anyone else out there. But when I was building boats, I trained, you know, I just started racing wild water and training wild water with Andy Bridge. Andy Bridge was my boss at Valley Mail Boats, and he was national and champion in C1 wild water and, you know, World Cup medalist and whatnot. But uh, so, but I was still training every day, you know, for probably two, maybe three years, you know, two workouts a day. Uh, you know, four, five, six days a week for years. Uh, slowly getting better. And then we were doing a workout at this place called Widewater on the canal. And I can't remember the day, but it's been sometime 92, something like that. But uh, a guy named Brian Parsons showed up, who's a slalom paddler, who, who uh, Lewis knows. And uh, I mean, how would you describe Parsons as a slalom athlete? Exceedingly talented, not necessarily the hardest worker. Right. His younger brother went on to Scotty Parsons went on to become probably one of the United States best solid paddlers. Would you would you say? Oh yeah, for sure. Like best of the generation. Anyway, uh, Brian, who was you know a very talented paddler, but like like Elman said, not training very hard, pretty much walked away from me in this workout, and I just got so mad uh, that I quit. That was it. Done. I <laughs> <laughs> threw a complete snit. <laughs> I never went back. Do people use the word snit anymore? That's like that's the ultimate snit. Not that was like, a snit. That I'm was like, yeah. That was as good a snit as you could get. I just that was it. No offense with Brian. It was totally me. I mean, Brian deserves way more credit than that for sure. But anyway, there you go. Let's move on to something else. <laughs> well, yeah, you guys accuse me of being Debbie Downer. Well, right. <laughs> real quick before we move on, I think it's totally natural, and I know a lot of people, not just you, Lewis, and I know I've seen it just in the time that we've known each other and worked together well, there's, there's like this ebb and flow that happens with your passion for the sport. You know, it's like, and then, sure. you know, you you got to find what it is at that point that, that excites you and if it was something that you were supposed to be doing or thought you were meant to be doing but you're not into it anymore then do something else so i mean the, pro the problem i have now is that like i don't want like i'm not that i've been paddling long enough that i don't feel that motivated to go run you know like the upper yacht as great as river is or even the upper blackwater because i run the upper blackwater hundreds of times you know um I wanted, you know, I wanted to do the harder whitewater, but at the same time, I'm just not paddling enough to feel comfortable going to paddle hard class five. You know what I mean? Because I don't want to, I just don't want to get killed, you know? And so I'm kind of in this weird situation um, that would be completely solved if I moved. You know what I mean? If I could, if I could move out west or, or even to Asheville where we had the green nearby and I was really engaged with a new river and a new location. Because I've been here forever. I've been here for 25 years or whatever. You know what I mean? That's, that's the rut I'm in. You know, and it, it kind of sucks. Although it's being lifted somewhat because my kids are now paddling and doing the calling and stuff like that. So I'm getting back out. But it's the kind of way what I really like to do. I'll be honest, I'm a little afraid to do right now, you know. 
No, I hear you. I really want to go into one more viewer mail here before we get into Josh and all of my batteries die. Um, this one comes in. This one just came in from uh, Matthias um, Fosted. Is that how you guys would say that? Hat tip to Matthias Fosted. This came at us by email. Matthias Fostvet. And this is on the lines of paddling and getting good at kayaking and whatnot. He says, I recently got into an interesting discussion with a much better paddler than myself who has been kayaking for probably close to 20 years. Both of us are from Idaho originally, but now living in Oregon, Washington. What that means is that we've both made the transition from, in quotes, Idaho Big Water to PNW Creeking. Well, he has at least. I'm still working on it. Basically relearning how to kayak on this completely different style of whitewater. While running shuttle, we talked about how paddlers from Idaho routinely come out to the gorge and get humbled by the demanding creaking conditions. On the other hand, paddlers from the gorge come out to Idaho and just absolutely crush it on big water and particularly the North Fork. Simply put, their skills easily transfer to our environment while our, while our skills do not. With all that said, I have two questions for you guys. Number one, why is it that creaking skills transfer to big water, but not vice versa? And number two, is the style of paddling found in the gorge the best place to hone your paddling skills for all styles of whitewater? Is there anywhere, uh, he throws out Norway, that might mold even better paddlers? Um, super good email there. Um, who wants to take this one? I mean, I think he's. I think he has a point for sure. I don't know. But there's why? A, there's, but why? I don't know. I'll tell you why I say that. Because growing up, we always felt like East Coast technical paddlers were better than people were always better paddlers than people running on big, big, pushy white water. You know, and we always used to use like uh, um, Chris or uh, Slater, Kelly Slater, as an example. You know, learning how to surf on East Coast slop you know, and really just having to work it. But that's, that is definitely a prejudice. Yeah. I would say that I think that he might be selling a little bit short, how intimidating it is to go over to the North fork for a lot of people from the Northwest. I mean, I think that, you know, when you're talking about, you know, we just, the gorge, we just have like a really high concentration of really, really, really good kayakers and not all of them necessarily. Um, you know, a lot of them just kind of moved there relatively recently. And I mean, you definitely get better paddling there, but it's because you're paddling, you know, 200 plus days a year on class five. And, you know, if you kind of move down a tier, you know, if you're not talking about like Annie Ole and Rush and Evan, but start talking about like the B team, you know, those guys go over to the, the North Fork and feel plenty humble over there for sure. But, you know, I think that, the levels that people are paddling in the in the northwest we're getting that push in kind of a, a creaky environment but the one thing i always think about when i kind of move back and forth from that big water environment to you know paddling like i'm a little white or something is that the one thing that seems like it you really need like on the little white that you don't need so much on the north fork is like stroke timing like you need to be in the right place all the time on the North Fork, but you don't necessarily have to have like the right stroke. It's just like absolutely the right second, you know, with the exception of like Jake's where that everybody regards as like the hardest rapid for sure on the North Fork, right? Where you really need to kind of like pop your boat to get through rodeo hole and pop your boat to get through rock drop. 
it just seems like that element of, of stroke timing is something that you don't need as much on, on big water or don't need as much on the North Fork. And I think t- that's my theory on what. I think that's, I think that's a good point. I remember going to sunshine for the first time and sort of being nervous ahead of it, but getting to that and thinking if this is, if, if you had grown up paddling East coast, sort of steep white water, sunshine is a move you should be able to do a thousand times out of a thousand times. You know what I mean? But that's just, that's just the, the stroke timing you're talking about. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I don't know. That's my theory. Yep. I also think I can also say that, like currently right now, you know, if you're normally, you know, your normal stomping grounds are the North Fork of the Payette, how much water's in that river right now and and are you paddling? And if you live in the gorge or you live like here right now, you can still be paddling every day. I think that there's that element as well. You know, you kind of take the seasonal factor out of it. Totally. Like I think if the North Fork were running at, you know, two grand plus, 300 days a year and you paddled that and that was all you paddled i think you would go anywhere in the world and just kill it yeah i think so too so i think a lot of it comes with the seasonal you know it's a season i know that a lot of times just you know for me personally in the last like five or six years january february march is my paddling season a good bit of the country is shut down during that time and that's like when it's the best time for me to go but I do agree that it takes a. I, I think if you're used to technical whitewater, hard whitewater, you can uh, adjust to big volume whitewater a little quicker because mainly it's just dealing with your fear versus really changing your technique. But I think if you're used to paddling big water, you have to significantly change your technique to handle technical stuff. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm, at the same time, I don't know. I'm I mean, I feel like you see you see guys who come out to the Northwest from, you know, the Southeast or Colorado and get pretty humbled by the amount of water in the river. You know, I don't know. I'd, at the same time, I've had numerous invitations to go to the Stikine, but I don't know, man. I look at the Stikine, I'm like, that doesn't look like something I've done before in my life, but I'd go to the Middle Kings in a heartbeat. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. Man, I feel like there's, uh, I don't know. Go ahead. I mean, I feel like when I got to the Stikine, I got, you know, you like run entrance and you're like, I never run anything like that either. <laughs> you know? It's like, right. just kind of its own thing. Like you just get yeah. there and yeah. there's not so many places you can go and have that, that experience, but you know how to do it, you know? Well, I think, um, um, answer to number one is I, if I had to answer, I'd say that uh, more than the style of whitewater is the number of days on the water that you that it affords you to live in the gorge area versus the payette. And number two, I don't know. You know, it's hard to beat the concentration of whitewater that's pretty close to year round in the gorge. I mean, it freezes up in Norway. His question, his second That's question. True. I mean, I think, I think, I think we're talking about like I, we, this is what we've all been saying is that on the East Coast we can just boat almost every day of the year. And same thing with with pretty close where you are, Lewis. You, you know what I mean? That's that's the that's really the thing. Yeah. You know. That's that's my opinion. Practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. Um, 
man. All right. We were, we're already like, what? Are we two hours in? Well, it doesn't matter because I'm at 32% battery on my computer. So we better we better get into our you interview. Turn your screen, dim your screen a little bit or something. <laughs> All right. Special guest. We have, we have what, 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 30, 40 seconds for the special guest today? Yeah. We've got a, a very small amount of time for our special guest. But before we do, mid-show sponsor. Kaleva, I finally figured out how to say it right after after three spots. Um, this is the 10th year of the Alsa Seca race, the Steep Creek race in Mexico on the legendary roadside section with over 20 different drops and waterfalls. Train for a week learning the lines with Tom McEwen and Steve-O preparing for race day on January 13th. There are two race courses, the short race open to everyone, the long race with the infamous Class 5 S-Turn. Kaleva is proud to sponsor the best creek rakes in Mexico, and Steve-O's heard the Southeast boys say it's better than the green race. The eight, all the sponsors are going to like start adding verbiage where they make me say it's better than the green race. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can you <laughs> magazine? It's better than Um, The eight-day trip is based out of the Mexican-run eco-resort, I say it wrong, Adventurec. 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 Yeah, there you go. Hang out with paddlers from all over the world. Enjoy homemade Mexican cooking, and the cervezas are cold, too. The Alsaseca race is January 6th through the 14th. Um, Join us for a post-Christmas Class 3 plus Deep Canyons trip. I wonder where that's at. Um, Or stay week. I think that's on the... Philobobos, I think. Okay. I'm not okay. mistaken. And um, and then after the Alsaseca race, you can stay for the uh, Tilapacoin Class 4 Plus trip with the Narrow Gripping Zone Dog. Um, check out the website, C-A-L-L-E-V-A dot org slash Mexico, and type in your Hammer Factor promo code, and we'll throw 100 bucks at your trip. So We... Um... We had the first ascent on El Seca. Dude, you know what? We got to have a. We don't have time on this show, but I really. No, we don't. I think that would be a really good one to talk about. Like, what an epic river to first ascent. Even. It was crazy. It was crazy. Given the time. And then the same trip, we did a tributary to the Fila Bobos called Las Minas. Me and this guy named. Um, oh, shit. Ben. Uh, fuck. I'm so pissed. I can't remember his last name. Anyway. Um, we did the first ascent on this thing called the Las Minas, which was awful, awful, <laughs> awful, awful, awful. But that's for another, another, another day. Grace, are you the first descent here of Tomata Two? Ah, uh, Jason Hill went right before me. I went second. God damn, that's a big rapid, man. <clears throat> it is a big Seriously. rapid. All right, I think I'm trying to get Josh on here. We'll see if we can get Josh on the line. We are right now at. 30% battery life and broadcasting through the hotspot hey. on my phone. Josh, you there? How's it going, guys? Hey, what's up? Good. You're on uh, You're on the Hammer Factor with Lewis Geltman, John Weld, and John Grace. I want to, Josh, real quick, I want to introduce you. Uh, Josh, you uh, are 24 years old? Uh, I'm 23 right Tw- now. 23 years old. Um, you live in Richmond, Virginia, is that correct? I do. And you have started a kayak company called VerusKayaks.com. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I started uh, Varus Kayaks. Varus. Aha. Uh-huh. That was one of our one of our questions. Um, what did I leave out of that intro that you would like our listeners to know? 
Um, not too much. Uh, just I'm really excited to be on the Hammer Factor. Thanks for having me on here. Um, I was able to start the company a few years ago, um, and just had the vision of it sort of being by kayakers, uh, for kayakers, and have really been uh, happy with all the progress that's been made so far in the company. And so, tell I me. mean, yeah, I mean, I looked at your your website. You have whitewater boats, you have fishing boats, you have coolers. I mean, you're like a little mini Jackson kayak, except without <laughs> the fun of the actual Jacksons involved. <laughs> how um, does that, first, I mean, I guess the question I have right off the bat is, how did this come to pass? I mean, uh, 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 how do you look at kayaking and be like, yes, that's what I'm going to make? And and I mean, how do you arrive at this point? Uh, so I guess I could like start at the beginning, well, where I'm from, sort of how all this started. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I was like 12 years old, my parents sent me away to do uh, expedition canoe trips up in Ontario, in Quebec, through an organization called North Wires and Langskib. Um, and also, when I was a kid in uh, middle school and high school, I was in a program called Formula One in Schools. Uh, so I was designing 120th scale uh, Formula One cars, and I had a great mentor at that time, uh, Chris Morris, who really taught me a lot about CAD design, how to make things, uh, doing some CNC work, 3D printing, um, and I sort of got a base for it there, and I started kayaking when I was 16, um, and three years later, I started designing boats when I was 19 years old, um, and when I originally started this, uh, it was more of an archaic process. I worked with Sean Alexander, uh, who owns Fall Line Canoes here in Richmond, Virginia, um, and we started cutting up bits of boats and pieces of plastic and welding things together. And I was really able to see, um, what worked with a boat and what didn't. And it was just a way to sort of get into it and to start designing, uh, boats. And I could go to Z Dam here in Richmond, go pile the James, go swing up to West Virginia and pile the golly and sort of see how the boat did. Um, after that, I, uh, made a plug, made my first plug for this playboat. Um, and I knew that in order to get this made professionally or to have it done well, I needed to find somebody, um, who could make these products. Um, and I'm also while doing this all, I'm, I'm currently, uh, uh, in business school here at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start a kayaking company while going to school, um, so I went overseas. Um, I went to China to find a company to work with. And I was lucky enough that there's a company there uh, that was that I first started working with and took that plug, made a fiberglass mold, and pushed out the first few uh, carbon Kevlar boats. So that's so, how it all sort of started. <laughs> so you started in the carbon Kevlar space, and then you kind of expanded into the rotor molded space after that? Yeah, uh, last January, I really, really wanted to push on getting an actual plastic river runner and creeker made. Um, and I know that's sort of where all whitewater kayaks are for the most part. It's hard to use composite boats on a lot of the rivers um, around the southeast and just in general. Um, so... Are, you, are all your all your boats are made in Asia? The composite boats and the the polyethylene boats. Yes, they are. They're made in uh, China right now in southern China. Um, and when I went over there, I was also 
fortunate enough to meet a businessman from Australia and he produced fishing kayaks um, and he was just kind enough that we were able to trade some molds uh, and that's how I've been able to offer, you know, some sups, fishing kayaks and I've been able to sort of expand um, my whitewater, all my whitewater boats in that time. So what's your, I mean, how do you position your company? I mean, you, you have a bit of project ahead of you in terms of selling boats that's in a market dominated by, you know, two or three brands. You know, what's your what's your plan there? Um, starting off, I just wanted to make boats that I really wanted to paddle. And I drew a lot of influence from some of the old school designs as well as some new breakthrough designs that have come out in the last um, couple of years. I just see a huge grassroots movement um, in the southeastern United States right now. Uh, I've seen a lot of paddlers in western North Carolina, uh, some of the Long Creek boys, um, and events like the Green River Rodeo. And I just see these people in this area revolutionizing paddling by taking all those boats that were meant to just do as many cartwheels as you could in a hole uh, and, utilize, and utilize those boats for enhanced downriver play. Um, and I really want to make boats for these people. Um, I've been, I've got two friends that have sort of come on long on various kayaks, uh, Mac McGee and Corey Sheehan. Um, and they've been paddling for the team too and are really invested in the designs. And they've been a huge help um, as well. Sort of being able to meet some of these people in those regions. Um, as well I mean, do you really it, understand it, those parts? In preparation for this, we were kind of talking about a, a couple other companies who, you know, a lot like your, a lot like yours, where it's just young guys, you know, young kayakers getting in and started to make kayaks. Do you, I mean, do you feel like you're part of a, a movement going on and of, you know, 20 something boaters starting a new kayak companies? Is that, do you think there's a larger mo- movement of that in the U S going on right now? Or I really do believe so. I, I think it's coming back as much as I'd love uh, for this to be like late nineties, early two thousands, uh, starting a kayaking company. I, I do think there is, a new community of people my age that are coming out and boating. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about just being a designer, like making, actually making boats. Um, um, we had a couple of people lined up, you know, and even people like like Adam Masters from Belliac, or we had a couple other people we were talking with who weren't quite ready to come on the show yet, but... Um, um, uh, to my knowledge, I'm one of the only people my age that's uh, sort of designing boats and doing it in this way right now, but I... I think there are maybe a few other people out there, like myself, who just haven't quite come forward or aren't uh, quite there with their designs yet. I mean, do you feel like I, I'm probably this may be a marketing question, but do you do you think? I mean, do you th- do you feel like some of these these companies like Dagger or Jackson are just kind of maybe sitting on the resting on the laurels a little bit in terms of boat design? You can come in and maybe offer an energy that's not currently there. Exactly. Um, the next boat that I'm working on right now is creating sort of this slicey play boat. Um, and that's a plug that I just started working on a few weeks ago. And I do. I think there is that energy, and I really want to hone in on it um, and expand upon it. I, I do think that those sort of those three companies are a little stagnant with some of their designs, and that's where I sort of want to step in and have designs that are unique in myself that um, sort of revolutionize what's out there currently. Right. I mean, what's your what's your sales model? Will you be selling direct or going to retailers, or what's your what's your thought there? Um, right now, just as small as it is, and you can see at the website, I am just selling direct. I have a few small retailers, but over the next couple of months, um, 
in January and February, I really would like to go approach uh, some more retailers about having some of my products in their stores. Right. What's your number one model right now? Uh, my number one model right now is my River Runner, uh, the Swift. I've sold a few of those, as well as um, I have a uh, fishing kayak, the Catawba, that's sold pretty well, and it's provided a nice like financial base for the business. So yeah. fortunate for that as well. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about? I mean, I guess I'm looking at sort of the. You know, do you see the fact that these other guys are all making all making these boats in the U.S. as an Achilles heel, or do you think that's a benefit for them? Um. And would you ever I, see yourself rotomolding your on your own? That that'd be the real goal. I'd love to have a place here in Virginia where I was rotomolding on my own. Uh, but just starting out, where I can go and get a production run of these boats done or a small run and be able to sell them and market them has been really useful um, for myself, especially with the sort of capital that I have to start this business. Yeah. Um, What's the, um, I mean, you, so you think it's more cost effective to make a kayak for yourself than it is to make it in, in Asia, yourself here in the U.S. than it is to make it in Asia? I, I uh, Not necessarily. I see the prices as probably about being the same. Mm-hmm. Um, How many boats can you fit in a container? How many boats can I? Uh, if it's a twenty foot container, I can fit about fifty boats in it. Um, is that, that whitewater boats or the fishing boats, or is that kind of average? combination of the both? Okay. But whitewater boats, yeah. I can fit. In a forty foot, I can fit about 85, 90 boats. <laughs> and so, is would you, would you say the ultimate goal is to sort of become one of these big top manufacturers, or do you see yourself kind of filling a more of like a niche market for kind of? I don't know, um, like forgotten design influences or more progressive kayaks or what's, where do you see, where do you see it going? Like, I feel like, you know, like I just keep thinking about like what Corin's doing with trying to, it seems like what he's mainly trying to do is offer people the opportunity to have their own ideas built or, and it seems like there's, I see some parallels with what you're doing here. Like, I don't know. What's the vision? Um, I definitely see uh, some parallels between what Corn and I are doing right now, and I really do respect uh, sort of the new designs he's coming out with. They are way different than those sort of three major companies you were talking about, Weld. Um, I see it right now as uh, starting out small, starting making these products and sort of creating this grassroots movement, but I would like to see it uh, move up into the spot where I'm competing with Dagger Jackson. So you'd be so you're not just gonna be a whitewater brand. Your goal is to be a, a complete one-stop shop for paddle sports. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you feel like the business school stuff is helping? Um, I do. Uh, <laughs> I think it's helping a little bit, sort of understanding how to do this. Um, but nothing could really prepare you for you know, just you gotta start somewhere and tearing in and working on a plug or. Uh, going to meet with somebody in a different country and talk about the starting boat production. There's, there's not school didn't quite prepare me for that. I don't think, but it has a lot of other great unintended benefits as well. What's right like when you place an order for a boat, a boat in China? What's, what's the minimum order? Like, what kind of numbers do they look at for you before they'll even turn on those, those tools? Um, so even with like having an aluminum mold done, it's really about the shipping container. It all comes yeah. down to just having a 20-foot shipping container. You got have to have about 40 boats you can put in and bring back across. They don't mind making 40 boats at a pop for you? They don't mind it at all. And then, you know, if I 
come back in 10 months or whatnot and get another batch made, they're absolutely fine with it. And how's the quality? Do you think it's pretty good? I think it's absolutely excellent. Uh, I lived there for three, four months um, and went through every step of it um, with them, going over every detail of the boat, how it's made, what materials are we using. And I've been able to bring them back um, and test them here and test them extensively over the last couple of years before I've been sort of putting any information out about the company. So it's right. definitely a product I really stand behind and the quality is absolutely great. Um, right. I also just have to say that I just want to give uh, just a little bit of a rave. I really enjoyed your made article that you wrote well done, uh, Site oh, Z. It's, thank it's, you. So, it's so well done and it really is similar to what I'm doing and sort of the vision of my company as well. So No question. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot, except you're, it, you know, I don't know much about boat, you know, large scale boat production. Um, I, you know, there's a reason why these guys make their boats in the U.S. Uh, and it has to be a financial one, I would guess. Um, but I've never, I've never really dug it into it enough to figure out why that is. You know what I mean? Um, when so many other things are made offshore. Absolutely. When I first, um, when I first went out to get some of these boats made, I looked around the U.S. Um, and there wasn't anybody that was really able to produce them here. So that's why. Well, early on, Liquid, you probably know this, but early on, Liquid Logic started as a design company and they were outsourcing the production to uh, Remcon Plastics in uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania. Um, but, you know, because it was two companies involved, no one was making any money. Uh, I mean, there, there was a lot more to that story than that, but that was, that was definitely one problem. You know what I mean? Remcon wasn't making any money and Liquid Logic wasn't making any money and the stores weren't making any money. Um, so I could see that not working. You know what I mean? I think these guys are rotor molding in house because they couldn't afford to do it otherwise. Uh, but they don't make them in Asia. There's no question about that. You know what I mean? I've never been able to quite figure out why they don't do that. You know, um, because at least on the garment side, running a factory is not the same thing as designing a garment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, running a factory is a pain in the butt. It's not a pain in the butt. It's just a completely different kind of job. You know what yes. I mean? Yeah, I think the guys at Liquid Logic and sort of the challenges they have keeping a you know an oven running twenty four seven or however they have to to produce all the boats that they do that is a completely different challenge than more the design and sort of brand management that I've uh, started and been able to do at this company. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean the question is I don't know. For us, it's been you know it's the model in our industry is that you know, you're a garment design company and that's all you do. You don't even bother touching with the manufacturing of it because manufacturing is so varied and so expensive. But, um, I mean, you seem, you seem going to, you seem to go on sort of more in the traditional boat market where you're going to make everything yourself, which is, I don't know. That's, that's, it's interesting. I don't know. I'd like to, I'd love to learn. I'd love to see the numbers on that uh, and, and not in a questioning doubtful way. I just, it's a, a fascinating thing for me, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like at some point there's a group of older boat designers. I mean, they have to at some point start phasing out. I mean, you know, I mean, Shane Benedict can't be designing boats forever. You know, I guess, I guess you're the next generation, right? Is that the plan? I guess I would say I'm a part of this next generation of guys that's out there sort of designing boats. <laughs> um, and I've learned so much from all the designs that those guys have put out between Warren and Shane. Perception Whip It, uh, you know, the Glide on that corn produced. They've, right. they've really done a lot of boats that I've drawn a lot of inspiration on. I just see this as like falling through and being able to manipulate and sort of revolutionize kayaking in a different way than uh, they sort of saw it. Right. 
What's yeah, what, it's a, yeah. Go, go what ahead. what's been uh, through this journey? What's been the hardest part? Um, I'd say the hardest part um, was knowing, sort of knowing where to start. I had no idea where to start at, and then getting boats made and figuring out international shipping, um, and just ensuring that the quality of these boats was going to be it's going to be great. Um, the initial challenge was Sean Alexander. He taught me an immense amount about boat design, um, so I was really fortunate there. Um, it just took a very, very long time. I think I'm somebody that really wants to start a project and have it finished two, three months later. And with producing a boat or something like that, it's an eight-month sort of span, a year-long span before I have an actual design done. It takes some time. So how do you pay for all this, if you don't mind me asking? Or how do you um, plan on paying for it going forward? You know, Absolutely. Um, right now, um, I was fortunate enough that took some of my savings, my parents were able to help me, uh, a few other family members, and a few other investors that have sort of come in, and I've been able to uh, have those people support me as well. So for what it is, I think I've kept the overhead very, very low um, and have really made the most of the money I've invested into it so far and put into it. Well, we're going right, into I mean, 2000. Do you think at some point you need, you're going to need to bring in some outside money? Uh, right now, I'd like it. Uh, I'd like to, I don't really want to bring in too much outside money. It's been nice that I've sort of been able to do this by myself um, and kept the equity in the company itself. Um, but I'm at the point now where um, I'm asking for pre-orders on my new design that I have out, the Gladiator, and that's how I'm hoping a lot of the funding for uh, my business can come. I understand that it's hard for people at first to sort of put money down on a boat they haven't seen um, and things like that. Um, but I think just based on the quality of so the information I've been able to provide, the design itself, I think a lot of people um, interested in getting yeah, it. Yeah, it, like, it looks like you're looking for how many, how many boat orders to get the thing off the ground? Uh, I just needed 20 boat orders to get the Gladiator off the ground itself. And how are we doing? Are we close? We're getting there. Um, I have a, sort of a set deadline that it'll end like just right before Christmas, the pre-orders, and I am actually I'm at like around six, seven right now, so I'm hoping I can make it. <laughs> Very cool. Well, what's uh, what's 2018 look look like for you? Um, 2018, I'll be graduating in the uh, springtime, so hopefully this will be my full-time endeavor now, and then I'll be uh, releasing some more information. Uh, hopefully, get a bunch of boats in uh, to your local retailer here in the next um, couple of months, work on designing this new slicey boat, getting the Gladiator into production, um, and just trying to grow from here, seeing what's possible with various kayaks, and if the market's really ready for it, and if everybody's willing to support this, and support the sort of goal and dream I have with it. Are you going to uh, Oklahoma for the paddle sports show? Yes, I'm cool. definitely planning on going to Oklahoma this year. Your sell stores, that's the place to be, I suppose. Very cool. Does anybody else have anything for Josh? No, it's interesting. You know, I mean, honestly, who would think about, I just didn't think anyone was looking at kayaking and being like, man, that's what I want to do and I'm going to do it. Like you hear like Isaac Levinson talk about doing it, but it never quite got off the ground. And that's the closest I've seen of someone actually coming to actually making a new I mean, Corin, but Corin's always up to something, you know. 
Yeah. And this one snuck way under the radar. I mean, look at all the models that are available for purchase right now. And when did you? When did this start? When When did you have your first boat in Richmond, Virginia? I had my first boat here um, about three years ago when I produced my first Bullock and had it done. About so two. The first boat. About two, two years three. ago. Right on, man. I wish you luck. Yeah. yeah. I see more of this. I feel like kayaking could use like a nice pl- proliferation of boat designers and just it's cool to see lots of people trying new things and i hope to see yeah i hope you guys succeed i think i mean you were talking about the early night or late 90s you know or a little earlier i i think we're starting to see a you know maybe not an explosion of growth but there's just a lot more energy in white water in the past couple of years i feel like don't don't you don't you guys is that I don't know. To me, I, I wonder if maybe, you know, we like talk about kind of the glory days of boat progression back when there was so much home building going on and, you know, manufacturing was, you know, something that, you know, you could make a paddleable kayak in your own garage, like that you would, you know, both you'd want to paddle on the whitewater you would want to run. And then it got to a point where the manufacturing, you know, sort of uh, capital costs of building the boats that you wanted to paddle because you wanted to paddle a polyethylene boat to run the shit you know, it got out of reach for, you know, somebody wanting to start on their own. And so maybe, you know, maybe that's an upside to manufacturing in Asia is maybe it becomes, you know, maybe it lowers the the initial capital investment you need to, you know, start down this road. And maybe we'll see more people who are able to kind of put their ideas into the water somewhere. So I think that's cool. Hmm. Let me ask you this, Josh. Know. Let me ask you this, Josh. I'll throw this out to you too. Well, do you, do you see, you know, you're talking about this kind of new, um, you know, group of designers and companies, and you know, just different visions for what a kayak to be. Do you think? Do you think there could be room for a manufacturer in the U.S. to not be so brand centric and make boats for people like Josh and make boats for other people, like one factory that's making several different brands instead of you have the Dagger Factory? the Jackson factory, the liquid logic. Well, I mean, I think the the contract manufacturing thing is kind of what I was talking about with Remcon. I don't know if there's enough money in there to do it unless you're selling boats direct. You know, if if you have a wholesale price built into the price of a boat, you're gonna have to make that boat yourself. (laughs) Yeah, but I think we always talked about like, you know, we were always like, why isn't somebody manufacturing blow molded boats like Prion is like, why isn't anybody doing that in the U S and what the answer I always got was if you had a blow molding machine and you were using it to make kayaks, you were just like pissing money into the wind. Like that you could be making, making something else basically. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I think there could be a potential for something like that. I just, I think the reason the Rimcon thing never worked out is because there was, that's a but, long, complicated story. That's a long, complicated but, story. But, but I think the foundation of the making, problem was there was they, too many there were too many companies taking a piece of the of the margin. Yeah. Well, I just think that like in Rimcon's sake, they were making trash cans and they were making whatever, and it was hard for them to retool the ovens and bring in the different molds and whatever. But I think if you were just if you just focused on making high end polyethylene designs, rotomolding them, that there could be room for you too. You can't because as a company, you're looking at say you're trying to make a fifty percent gross margin. I mean, Remcon's going to want to make that, and Verus is going to want to make that, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Varus is going to want to make that, and then the retailer wants to make that. You know what I mean? I mean, every step of the way, you can't have people making a forty percent margin. You know, 
Absolutely. Unless, I, unless the boats cost $3,000, you know? You need about four other versions of me all working together, sort of with their own brands. But then it's, you know, one brand, you know, does better than the other brands. You know, it's like if I was to ask Liquid Logic if they wanted to get some of my boats made, they would probably be like, well, we don't really want to compete with your business or add a new company in this market, you know? So why would we want to, why would we play? <laughs> you get we, get, I mean, we get approached to make spray skirts for other people all the time. You know what I mean? Like pr- skirts with different people's brands on it. And we could make 10 times as many skirts as we're making right now with other people's brands on it. But we wouldn't make any money on those skirts. You know what I mean? They'd want to buy it for essentially what we're paying for them. Yeah, but you're not a manufacturer. <laughs> you know? Anyway. I mean, I th- there's a cost of goods sold that comes out of a factory. And I think if you could fill that oven time by making kayaks, you could support it. That's just That's just my thought. But we disagree, Mr. Weld. Well, we disagree because you're wrong. I think that's the... Much more to it than that. Uh, got to it. Well, I mean, here's here's another question for you. Since since we're since you're here, it's been my observation that there has never been a successful whitewater boat company, standalone whitewater boat company in the U.S. You know, I mean, you go Dagger, Wayport, Jackson. You know. Every single one of them has either had to diversify into fishing kayaks and sub or whatnot, or they've been bought by a bigger company. Every single one of them. You know? And that's sort of the model that I am following. Um, I think it's hard. But, I don't think there's... but you're not a, are you a fisherman? No, I can't you say that. You love fishing now. kayaks? <laughs> no, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, to me, a core, we need a core whitewater boat company. You know, that's just whitewater. <laughs> that's what I'd really like to do. I just need to make sure I've got a financial base before, you know, I could bring production here or just do whitewater boats. You know, I just want to have the financial base to get it off the ground and sort of do that. That is the dream. I, just, I mean, you, that's you could do, about. I just, you could look, you could make a, a little chart and sort of document the four or five things that all these failures had in common. And there are a few, of, there, there are a few things they all have in common. I think I think it is financially possible to do a standalone whitewater company, but you'd have to break I, a I few traditional well. rules. Very feasible. I, I'm on the. I think I feel like I could be on the verge in the next six, twelve months. So, but you know. Yeah, I mean what I mean. IR has been a standalone whitewater company since the beginning, and has not been an easy road for sure. We could have made a lot more money making other stuff, but. So I don't know if you, that's something you really want to do. I think about it. Government contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, nine yards, but like that is yeah. that is part of what makes IR great for sure is that you guys have stood by the. What's irangler.com? Uh, that's run by Spencer Cook. Okay. Well, Josh, we're, my battery is at eight percent here. We're gonna have to let you go, but we'll uh, we'll check back with you in a year. I I I'm super excited yeah. for you and super rad, dude. Very interesting story. We have a couple more people lined up. We had talked about in preparation of the show that I, that are sort of in a similar situation, and I'd like to hear from them too. Maybe have to do a roundtable at some point. You know what Absolutely. I mean? See where we're all at. That would be interesting. Yeah, Very and cool. and Adam Masters, whose dad was uh, uh, or Bill uh, Bill Masters, the founder of Perception, who's a character and a half. Uh, but Adam <laughs> sure would be. Have, uh, do you know Adam? You guys know Adam? Oh yeah, I know Adam. No, no. super good dude. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, <clears throat> super cool guy. Anyway, all right. Well, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Thank you guys. I, I appreciate I'm a, it. I'm gonna take that uh, Gladiator for a spin here after the new year. So. Oh, you should go buy and see steel and go grab that thing. <laughs> I will. I will, man. So thanks for coming on. All right. cool. You guys have a good one. All right. Well, very good. That was super cool.
Yeah, um, interesting, man. All right, guys, we gotta we gotta wrap this daddy up, or uh, or it's not gonna happen. So, ladies and gentlemen, your favorite section of the show, Rants wait, and wait, wait, Raves. Wait, 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 coming up next, coming up soon, ladies' episode, any minute. All right, right. Anonymous boat guy is on deck to come back. <laughs> yeah, right? he's, he's better audio up. quality. He's fired up. He's yeah. working on his system. So we got yeah. we got mixed I, reviews. I liked you, anonymous anonymous boat review guy. He was kind of hard to understand. Mixed, who, who what what bad reviews did we get besides the audio quality, which was an uh, obvious obvious issue? You know, people just were like, you know, there was a few. I think it's I think it's a diamond in the rough. I think I was just I was just laughing so hysterically that I didn't have an opportunity to tell him why he was wrong. <laughs> so you know, the thing we need is we need we need a European anonymous boat review guy to review all the European boats that are out there that we never talk about, like Spade and the rest of these. No, you're a hundred percent right Zed. on that one. We are slacking on that one. Yeah. So if we could get someone from Europe who wants to contribute an anonymous boat review about all these boat companies in Europe to give us the straight dope on that, I think that'd be really cool. Okay, moving on. Rants and Raves, we've really got to do this. My battery is going to die. Okay. I'm sorry to cut you guys off. Um, I won't, up here. I'm going to go ahead and – I know. I'm going to go ahead and open up. And I'm right about the manufacturing thing, and time will tail no, on that. No, um, you're not. Well, so – You're so wrong. Listen, you're wrong. I'm right. I'm handsome. You're ugly. I – you know, whatever. <laughs> Right. Anyway, we digress. I want to get into a rave. I'm going to rave about my wife who is taking off tomorrow uh-huh. to run across 30 miles, 10,000 feet of climbing the Art Lobe Trail. And my rave is for coming up with an adventure and following through. So I'm just going to rave about that. She doesn't this listen to like the show. This is like hashtag so I love my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. She's getting ready to crush When it. you get divorced. <laughs> this is like the next the thing you do right before you get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, man. Love you, baby. Well, love you. Love you. Okay. <laughs> and we will get back into this boat discussion when I have more battery life. In fact, I just put two and two together. You're doing this because these ac- these accusations are about to come out about the in- from the interns. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to get in front of that story in a big way. I gotcha. All right, Gellin, what do you got? <laughs> I mean, are you guys familiar with these websites? We had this conversation. We were doing some planning here yesterday, and we were looking at this website, this company that I'm not going to name. But it's like they're like ACA. sort of like <laughs> no, this is like, <laughs> don't get me any trouble. Well, we love ACA. There's <laughs> this website for this this business that like it has like I don't know like some like hipsters like curating sort of vaguely outdoorsy clothing, and it's yes. like if you don't know what to buy, you go to yes. this website and they tell you what they're yes. Oh my god, dude! It's yes. like. It's so, it's just the whole aesthetic is like yes. the most smarmy Instagram stuff yes. you've like ever seen. It's like the right. male equivalent of SoCality Barbie. Right. And, and it's, it's like, like, here's like a wool, here's like a wool, plaid wool button up shirt called the Truman. Yeah. And it costs $300. Uh, and it's like, and yeah, it you don't, you don't, this, I see so much of that. It makes me want to vomit. It makes me want to vomit. It's like, it has this like veneer of outdoorsiness and like this right. like faux environmentalism. Right. And I, it, it's like, not only is it just consumerist and appalling, yes. but it's like, it, it's like they're it, taking our lifestyle and it's like, it, it's like 
people who are like casting for like the made-for-TV movie about what we're actually doing. And not like, only that, if- going and getting <laughs> rad. We're working on environmental <laughs> shit. And then there's like some guy with his like perfectly coiffured beard. If you went selling some three hundred dollars shirt for some Portland hipster to wear to brunch, and I'm if you went so to Asia, <laughs> if you went to Asian garment factories and saw how easy it is to make that stuff and how cheap it is, you'd be even more nauseated. You go into these showrooms and they're just like, you just point to something, and be like, I want this, except I want it in Heather Green and this, and they're like done. Like <laughs> pearl buttons up, like fine. Where do you want your logo? I mean, that's how easy it is. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm just disgusted. It's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, all right, that's all I got. That's a good one, Lewis. I like it. Yeah, I see that all the time. It's uh, yeah, that scratches me right edge. Four <laughs> percent. All right, I'm gonna. You know what? My I'm gonna rave today, and I'm gonna rave about John Grace. What? And I've been thinking about that for yes, I am. I don't think you're a very you know your own weird way. You're a very humble guy, but you've run some pretty big fucking whitewater in your day. And done some pretty amazing things in a boat, and I don't know that people really know that anymore about you. And I want to make sure that they do. Well, thanks, man. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I had I had a loose decade there. That was good times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were you pretty influential. I mean, you you pretty influential boater for sure. Well, I I love kayaking, and I try to not keep mm-hmm. it. I try to not take it too serious. That's good. <clears throat> That's a good thing. Well. All right. Well, I mean, are we going to try and do – okay, so if we're going to try and do one more of these shows before 3%, if we're going to try and do one more of these shows before the new year, do we want to just do a best of show? What does that mean? I mean, I can just – I have to like, go to per- – I'm going to Peru on the 22nd, so – Maybe we should just call it until after the new year. What do you guys think? I'll do one more, but I just have to do it before the 22nd. I can do it next Thursday. Can you do it next? I got to jump though. I got to get on a call about suing Trump over monuments. <laughs> you are the man. 